Hello, Wisconsin. It is 7.01, 7, just about 7.02 p.m. You are listening to the Perpetual Notion Machine on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm your host, Emily Morris. On tonight's episode of PNM, I'll be speaking with Antarctic explorer and creative director Ariel Waldman. She is a National Geographic explorer who created the pr- project Life Under the Ice, which is a super fun interactive online portal where you can zoom in on all the extreme files that live under the ice in Antarctica. She is also the author of the book, What's It Like in Space? Stories from Astronauts Who've Been There. I feel like there are too many other credits and projects to name, so let's just start talking about some of them. Ariel, welcome. I'm very excited to have you on the show, and welcome to WRT. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, Okay, so you were in Antarctica for five weeks, working and living there, and have really been gunning to go back. What was your mission the first time you went? Yeah, so uh, the first time I went to Antarctica was in 2018, and I went on the National Science Foundation's Antarctic Artists and Writers Grant. Um, I spent five years applying for this one grant um, to really go and uh, film all the microscopic uh, little animals and other creatures that live under the ice in Antarctica, because a lot of people think that there's only penguins in Antarctica, and I was really keen to show that there's actually so much life in Antarctica, you just need a microscope to see it. Um, so what have you missed since you were there last time? Uh, I mean, there's so much that I've missed. You know, it's interesting uh, because when I went to Antarctica the first time, I really, I knew I really wanted to go there, but I wasn't sure I was going to enjoy it uh, because I don't like being cold and I don't like camping. Um, you know, I'm not a super outdoorsy person, um, but, you know, I, I knew it was a really fascinating landscape and and special place to go. And I was so delighted because after five weeks, I was so sad to leave because I had a fantastic time and Um, There's so much to enjoy and appreciate, not only the fact that, you know, you're in this location that is very otherworldly, and yet you're still on planet Earth um, is is just really a trip. But also being down there and actually being on the science station of McMurdo, um, I really got a chance to just be around people doing endless fascinating work, you know, people studying all sorts of things in the atmosphere and the ground and penguins and seals and, uh, you know, different uh, characteristics of ice and glaciers. It's really kind of like a a geek sleepover for for several (laughs) weeks, um, which I just loved. Yeah. How close do those animals get to the station that you named? What was the the name of the station again? Uh, McMurdo Station. McMurdo Station. How close do the animals get to McMurdo Station? So last time I went, I uh, was there towards the start of summer, um, which means there's still quite a bit of sea ice that surrounds McMurdo Station, um, which means a lot of the wildlife, the larger wildlife doesn't come that close to the station at that time. So I um, I got to see some, you know, Weddell seals uh, and, and, you know, sea spiders underneath um, 
the sea ice and everything like that. But uh, the penguins I didn't get to see. But this time, you know, I'm going back to Antarctica, which I'm really excited about this year. Uh, and I'll be going much later in the summer when the, there's less sea ice. And so I'm expecting I'll probably see a, a number of penguins this time around. Yes. <laughs> so what is your mission going to be for this upcoming trip then? Yeah, so it's going to be uh, really intense. So this time I'm going back to Antarctica for two months and I'm going back as an embedded researcher on the McMurdo Dry Valley's long-term ecological research project, uh, which is a long name, but uh, they do some of the most uh, amazing uh, climate change uh, data capturing of, of a lot of the teams down there. Um, so they've been studying a specific area of Antarctica for several decades, and they're able to uh, capture data about the soil and the atmosphere and the lakes and um, the glaciers and, and kind of everything down there. And they're able to start to tell the story of how climate change affects a specific area in Antarctica, which is not really the same story as, uh, you know, in the Arctic where you have massive um, melting going on. In Antarctica, it's a little bit more um, subtle and, and different uh, in the ways in which climate change is going to affect the area. So I'm going to be uh, embedded um, on the soils team looking at all the critters um, that exist in the, uh, the microscopic critters that exist in the soils there. And my second job is um, I'm supported by National Geographic to film the expedition and uh, film um, a uh, self-shot docu-series looking at Antarctica from different orders of magnitude, from satellites down to the microscopic level. Um, so the other scientists that you're working with, you know, when you go out and take these soil samples, like what... What is their mission there? What are they trying to achieve when they, when you all work together and see what types of organisms and microbes are in these soil samples? Yeah, so the long-term ecological research group is really fascinating. Um, they've got several sites across uh, the U.S. and then a couple of sites in the Antarctic. Um, and really what they're trying to do is measure ecological changes over over decades. Um, specifically, the um, group in Antarctica in the Dry Valleys, the Dry Valleys of Antarctica are a really fascinating place. Um, I'm biased because I think they're perhaps the most interesting place in Antarctica. Uh, <laughs> but, it, you know, Antarctica is full of snow and ice. 98% of it is covered in snow and ice. And in some areas, it's as thick as two miles of ice. Um, the Dry Valleys is a very unique location, only around the size of Rhode Island on a continent that's otherwise the size of um, the US and Mexico combined. So a very tiny area in Antarctica. It's the largest area that is not covered fully in snow and ice. So you can actually you know, touch the continent itself rather than just be stepping on miles of ice covering it. And so this uh, team that goes down there, uh, you know, they have a soils team, they have a streams team, they have, uh, you know, people looking at uh, different aspects of the ecology down there. And with the soils team, a lot of what we're doing is measuring um, the soils and how they change over many uh, years and decades and how many uh, different types of creatures are living in those soils. So a lot of what I'll be doing is actually uh, counting, you know, how many tardigrades are there? How many nematodes? Has that changed significantly since we were there last? Has that changed significantly 
in the last few decades. And why this is actually particularly interesting in terms of the story of climate change in Antarctica is because, uh, you know, a lot of people assume, you know, with climate change and warming temperatures, like all these creatures are just going to die out. That's not actually probably what's going to happen. What's more likely to happen is that for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, only a small select group of creatures have been able to survive the harshness of Antarctica. And as the climate changes and warms, uh, other creatures will be able to actually survive in Antarctica. So the climate change story really in this particular location is really going to be about increased competition. And what does that mean if tardigrades are having to battle it out with, you know, insects or something to get food, you know, there's going to be some winners and some losers, um, but it'll be really a story of uh, tardigrades and nematodes getting more neighbors in this really remote location. Um, let's talk about what a tardigrade is. <laughs> What's a tardigrade? Yeah, <laughs> yeah so tardigrades uh, are also known as water bears. Um, they've gained <laughs> popularity over the last few years. Um, you know, people have seen them on the cosmos uh, episodes or, you know, I think uh, tardigrades are like uh, in Ant-Man and there are these really cute little tiny microscopic animals and they are actual animals. Um, to me, they look like really weird gummy bears that have claws. Um, you know, they're really, you know, they're cute. They waddle around. Um, but yeah, they have little claws and they're just super um, cute. So uh, tardigrades, and uh, rotifers, I believe, are um, two of the smallest actual animals that exist on Earth. Um, but they're about, you know, a quarter of a millimeter big. So you typically need a microscope to see them. So when, okay, so when, when we say animals, we don't mean, man, what, it's just not insect, right? They're yeah, they're not insects. They're kind of their own thing. Um, rotifers are, look kind of like really strange worms. Uh, and, and the theme that I'm going down with uh, often gets nicknamed the worm herders because, you know, nematodes are, are worm-like creatures and, and rotifers are too. Tardigrades are really kind of, I don't know, you know, I'm not a biologist, but I would personally say they're kind of their own thing. They don't really look like a lot of other creatures, um, but they are they are in the animal kingdom. Um, yeah, so they're they're really, um, you know, if, if you're listening to this, you know, Google tardigrade or, or water bear, and, and you'll see um, they're really cute. <laughs> um, and we think that they've been around for a very long time. Are tardigrades one of those long, durable? animals that have been in Antarctica for a very long time. Yeah, so they're, you know, that's part of what makes tardigrades uh, famous is, you know, they've been uh, seen to be able to survive, you know, um, lots of dryness or, or extreme environments. Um, they've actually been exposed uh, to the vacuum of space and been able to survive that. Um, they've also been documented to be able to survive for several years beyond their lifespan um, by essentially going into their version of hibernation. Um, they're really hardcore creatures. And, and so, yeah, they've survived in Antarctica for quite a while, um, partially because they can um, go into a hibernation. It's not exactly hibernation. They can go into a desiccated state um, when uh when it gets really cold or really dry, and then they can wait it out until 
conditions get favorable again. So if you're in the lab and you're looking at a tardigrade and you dry out that tardigrade, um, it'll you know, slowly go into this ton state, this sort of a desiccated state. And then if you add water, you know, a few days later, they'll pop back to life. It's really amazing. Um, and it's what allows them to be able to survive in Antarctica. Wow. So, okay. And how do we know, <laughs> like, how long they've been there? So when you're, when you're taking a soil sample and mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out how long have these, how many thousands of years have these organisms been there? What's, what's the process or what are the things that you look for when you determine how long something has been around? Yeah, so that's an area of active um, research that's done by a lot of the, the group that I am with. You know, they do this amazing research to sort of find answers to these questions, um, you know, and even looking at how long the glaciers themselves have been in Antarctica is sort of an area of active research. So this is, uh, you know, I don't have firm answers on it, but um, but this is what I love about the long-term ecological research group is that, you know, together they're able to collaborate and piece together um, what different environments in Antarctica have looked like over the hundreds and thousands of years and determine why, you know, some areas are favorable to some organisms and not others. Um, and whether that has to do with the biology of those organisms or if it has to do with if the environment itself changed over years. So I'm, I'm talking with Ariel Waldman, Antarctic explorer and author of What's It Like in Space? Stories from Astronauts Who've Been There. So I want to talk about those things that we're optimistic about learning from the soil and from these um, extremophiles that we can use for our own climate change knowledge. Are we, are we looking, are you mostly looking at like durability strategies you know are we gonna take some natural phenomenon that you see in these um durable things in antarctica and use that in another application yeah i mean some some people do uh you know the ecological research group is more focused on uh, studying, you know, the actual environment and sort of how it interacts with, uh, you know, how different components of the environment interact with each other and how that then interacts with our planet at large. But in terms of, you know, looking at these creatures for their durability and um, developing, you know, products or medicines based off of that, there are a lot of people um, around the globe who are focused on that and looking at, you um, different mechanisms for extremophiles to be able to survive in, in uh, these conditions and if it can be translated to humans. Um, you know, it's a very, a lot of that stuff is in its nascent stage, but, um, you know, there's a lot of products over time that are inspired by the way that different microbes around the world are able to, um, you know, interact and, and survive. Um, you know, the thing that I love about tardigrades specifically is not only are they, you know, well suited for these extreme environments, but they can be found all over the earth. In fact, you know, if you go out to your backyard or to your sidewalk and you see some moss, there is a very good chance wherever you are in the world right now, there's a bunch of tardigrades in that moss. And so not only are they really well adapted to survive in extremes, but they're really well adapted to survive 
kind of everywhere. It doesn't have to necessarily be an extreme environment. Um, so I think that's what I love about them so much is that, you know, when you first learn about them, they're these like exotic, like faraway creatures, but really you're walking by them every day. And we just don't really have this knowledge of um, all these tiny animals that we share our neighborhoods with. Do you think anybody's ever had a pet tardigrade? Um, I know people who uh, will claim that they have pet tardigrades because, you know, yeah, they, they keep um, a bunch of moss inside of their house and they usually will take out the moss and put it under the microscope and look at um, some tardigrades. And uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, necessarily the, the easiest pet because you can't always see what they're up to, but, um, but it's definitely possible. <laughs> Oh, there goes Emily Jr. across the moss again. Yeah. <laughs> would you say that would you say that any of these organisms, these tiny tiny organisms are smart? Is is there any is there any level of intelligence that you can see beyond a natural um process of adapting to these environments? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're asking me, I'm certainly on the side of I think we live on a planet with extremely intelligent creatures and we just don't really acknowledge it because we're always looking at stuff through our human way of looking at what is intelligence or not. So, um, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, octopuses are really smart. And they are. They are extremely smart. But I would also argue even, you know, cows, I think, are are incredibly smart and feeling and intelligent. Um, that's a little bit of my worldview. But, you know, looking at tardigrades and filming them for hours under the microscope, as I have, um, you know, I think it's hard not to, you know, view it through a very human lens of, of they're super cute and, uh, you know, they're built to do a lot of things really well, which is, you know, they've got these claws to allow them to climb over moss and sort of um, some of them are predatory tardigrades. Other ones are more vegetarians. Uh, you know, there's there's close to there's something like close to a thousand species of different tardigrades. So while um, they look very similar to one another, um, there's lots of different types of them. And I think inherently when you have that much diversity in a specific type of animal, I think you're going to see a wide range of different types of intelligence for how they go about their um, life and how they sort of uh, go around and navigate the world. Um, but in terms of, you know, what they come equipped with, uh, they have a couple of eye spots. So they don't have um, eyes like we know of them. They have eye spots, which are more for determining, you know, how dark or light it is outside. So um, again, if your view of intelligence is predicated on how well someone can see, well, you know, they can't see very well, but they can see well enough to do what they need to do, which is you know, eat, sleep, and and uh, anticipate when the weather is is good or bad. Right. Um. So you, how different? Okay. So now I want to talk about the organisms that you've also seen in deep space. I mean, the deep sea. I mean, and also mm -hmm. and also <laughs> deep, deep space. <laughs> um. You know, the deep sea. I mean, and also outer space. Are there? How similar are all three of these environments in terms of the organ the tiny organisms that you see in all of those places? 
Yeah, I mean, when looking at the microscopic world, you know, in in the deep sea, there are microscopic creatures everywhere. Um, you know, you can find them in deep sea vents, um, and uh, they're really fascinating for understanding, you know, how life might exist on another planet or moon, um, because it, they're kind of a proof point that uh, very deep under the sea where there's no light penetrating at all, um, but you have deep sea vents, you have microbes that are able to get energy based off of um, the chemicals coming out of these deep sea vents. So instead of using photosynthesis, they're using, you know, chemicals uh, to get their energy. And they're having a great time down there as far as like a lot of the research has shown, you know, there are microbes, uh, you know, deep under the seabeds that you could say are just barely hanging on. Um, they grow very slowly. Um, and are kind of unlike uh, life as we know it um, in a lot of other places. But uh, there's really microbes everywhere. And I think that has really profound implications for how we might be able to find life um, either in our solar system or uh, certainly on exoplanets, planets uh, outside of our solar system. Um, because there are all these examples of planets and moons where the environment is not like Earth. You know, there's no... Um, uh, you know, there's there's no atmosphere or uh, there's no access to sunlight, um, you know, really extreme environments where we would think most life on Earth wouldn't be able to survive. But the more that we understand about extreme polar environments on Earth and, and deep sea environments on Earth, um, the more we can really expand our portfolio of what can realistically survive elsewhere because we have that example here on Earth. It's not to say that Earth is the only example of what can and can't survive out, out in the cosmos, but the farther we can expand just what we know can survive here on Earth, um, the more likely you know, it is that there really is probably life elsewhere in the universe. Yeah. Have, have you gotten your hands on any samples from, say, the moon or another um, planet? Uh, I have not. Um, you know, one of the cool things, though, for getting samples from other places is really looking at meteorites. Um, and Antarctica is a really fantastic place to find meteorites that um, have come uh, from other locations in our solar system. Uh, and that's uh, not because Antarctica is somehow special, um, but it has to do with the fact that because it's a continent mostly covered in snow and ice, that's, you know, pristine white, uh, it means that it's very easy to actually visually spot meteorites, um, which constantly fall to Earth um, in different sizes. And so um, that's why Antarctica is actually a really fascinating place to study uh, material that comes from other locations uh, and, and can give us insights into um, sort of the history of celestial bodies in our solar system. Mm -hmm. And have, have you have you done that? Have you found a meteorite sample there and gotten to take a look at it? So I haven't, um, but one person that I uh, enjoy collaborating with is a guy named Scott Peterson, and he looks at micrometeorites. Um, so these are microscopic meteorites. And why that is so cool is because he's able to find microscopic meteorites on rooftops all over the world. And so um, he can actually take a magnet to the tops of rooftops 
and find microscopic meteorites um, and, and studies them in the you know hundreds, probably thousands of them at this point. Um, and it's just so cool. So I've uh, collaborated with him and he's shown me a few meteorites and then um, given me some micro meteorites to look at. And I hope, you know, if I get lucky, maybe I'll collect some micro meteorites on um, this upcoming expedition. Uh, but I'm, I'm less um, versed in, in uh, his techniques than he is. So, um, so I'll be kind of trying it out as a newbie. Yes. I'm, I'm imagining like both of you walking around with portable portable microscopes do you just always have a microscope on you I can when I choose to I do have a a small microscope that actually converts into like a purse um so it's very easy (laughs) to to carry it around I don't know how you know realistic it is you know because I don't want to be preparing like a glass slide on the fly that's not necessarily fun but um but I can you know when I'm prepared to to you know mess around with it a little bit more Right. When you're, when you're in the lab, yeah, what, what is the process for when you, when you find something that you want to take back with you and take back to the lab? Um, where does it go? Where does it go after that? Do you keep, do you keep a lot of these things as, as samples? So um, the samples that we take in Antarctica uh, do get shipped back to um, a, a home institution. So um, the principal investigator on different teams will take different uh, samples. Um, so in the case of the soils team, the soil samples will go back to the principal investigator's institution um, and stay on file to either do fi- um, follow-up research to um, or sort of uh, try out different um, theories on. And what's really great about that and, and so kind of cool about this work is that, you know, because the creatures we study inherently are used to freezing temperatures, what we end up doing is we'll collect soil samples and then bring them into a lab um, in Antarctica and very, very slowly, gently freeze these soil samples down. So we'll step down the temperatures in a a slow, you know, predictable way um, until they're frozen solid. And then we ship the frozen solid samples back to the U.S. Um, and you can take samples from Antarctica of these creatures, f- have them in your freezer for like two or three years, and then decide, hey, I want to wake them back up and, and look at them and study them. And a very large percentage of them will wake back up after being frozen for years. Um, so it, it's a really you know, weird, but fascinating sort of way of, of studying creatures that um, a lot of other, I think, uh, people who study different types of wildlife don't get to do that sort of um, studying. Right. To take a break for a few years and come back to them and see how they did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we are wrapping up on time now, but when are you heading back to Antarctica? Uh, I am heading back at the start of December. Um, so pretty soon. So it'll be super sun. It'll be sun sunlight there all the time yeah 24 hours of sunlight i'll be going really towards the peak of of summer there um, and i'll be there for two months so i'll be there through february amazing i can't wait to hear about how your trip goes ariel i want to thank you so much for being here please come again and yeah let us update us on everything that you discover on your next trip (laughs) absolutely yeah and if if uh you find me on social media or elsewhere um right now i'm offering uh, postcards from Antarctica on my Patreon, or um, also I've got links out for how you can sign up to my newsletter to get updates from me from uh, Antarctica while I'm there. So uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. Thank you so much for being here. 
Uh, if you want to share this show or just happen to be catching us now, you can always find our shows on the WORT website, wortfm.org. But also, I hope Ariel will come back again for another chat because we need Antarctica updates. Thanks again to Ariel Waldman for being here. You can check out her website, arielwaldman.com and lifeunderthice.org. I'll post those links with our show recording, which you'll also be able to get on SoundCloud. Thank you for listening to this episode of Perpetual Notion Machine. We'll be back next Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Time for more science on PNM. I've been your host, Emily Morris. Have a great night, Wisconsin. 